If you're new this week, um, or if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name's Jeff. I'm the campus minister for RUF. Um, and just to introduce a couple people, Zach is in the back in the purple shirt. Jasmine is on the other side, and her husband, Carson, is back there as well. Uh, so Zach and Jasmine are both on staff full-time with RUF as well. So from time to time, you'll see uh, one of us or all three of us on campus. Um, we would love to get to know you, whether that's to grab lunch or coffee or something like that. Um, and kind of hear your story and just share with you more about RUF and help you in your walk with Christ uh, as you're growing in him. This semester, uh, we are going to be going through some books in the Old Testament. Uh, I've kind of wanted to cleverly title this like the little books that everybody forgot about, but that's not really that clever. Uh, but to look at like the, the books that's kind of like at the end of the Old Testament or the end of the New Testament, I mean, uh, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, First uh, and Second John, Third John, Jude, kind of the the smaller couple of chapters, sometimes length books, because the emphasis that those writers have is often on how do we live faithfully in times of hardships and times of sufferings. In particular, one of the angles that they often take is also how do we live faithfully in times where the world around us seems to be moving further and further away from uh, from godly. Uh, godly worldview, godly values to where a Christian, as a Christian, you start to feel like you're isolated and you're kind of all alone. Uh, in historical terms, you know that that's what was happening in the Roman Empire uh, as, as, uh, as persecution was growing. But it's not just persecution. It's also just the fact that life is hard. And so we're going to be looking at some of, these, uh, some of these chapters in these books in order to look at what it means to live faithfully. So tonight, let's look at James chapter 1. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 18 and we'll dive in. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes into dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Let me pray for us. Our Lord and our God, our, our hearts and our minds are open to you. Uh, your word is open before us. Will you send your spirit to help us to see and to hear and to understand? 
We ask this simply in the name of Christ. Amen. Uh, I made the, the terrible mistake of getting my, my boys um, a set of bunk beds from Ikea. Love Ikea, but I, it's not exactly like the long-term furniture solution for life. And so like when your kids are little, bunk beds work. But as my boys were getting older, they would start to tell me like, Dad, I think our bunk beds are about to crash. And I was like, no, I think they're fine. I think they're fine. I think they're fine. And finally, over the summer, I went and I took a look at what they're looking, what they're talking about. My two older sons who are 12 and 10, and they're starting to get bigger and heavier. I realized like when they get into bed, the whole thing is like shaking like a boat out in the ocean and it's cracked underneath the bottom. And I thought one of them is going to come crashing down on the other and this is going to be bad. So over the summer, uh, I told my 10 year old son, I was like, let's build a new set of bunk beds. You and me, we'll go to Home Depot and we'll get all the wood. We'll lay it all out and we're going to build all of this. His older brother, my oldest son, was off at camp. We're going to surprise him when he gets home. Complete new room. So we lay out all the wood and we start making all the cuts. And what he didn't realize, though, is as we're laying all this out, uh, he's seen me do some things around the house from time to time. But this job required a little more effort. It required a little more work. It required more skill and it required more tools in order to get the job done. And it felt like every time we turned around and I was pulling something back out of this shed, another tool, another nail gun, another, another level, another specific type of drill or another specific type of saw. He was like, where are you getting all of this from? And what does this do? I said, this is what it's going to take for us to turn this pile of lumber into a set of bunk beds that hopefully doesn't crash on you guys and that might passably look good so that mom doesn't complain, right? But like we're, we're going from like this, this pile of wood over here to try to make something look complete and look good. And it takes tools that you don't know about in order to make this happen. And I thought about that as I was reading and, and preparing for this particular passage in the book of James, because in the same way, I think James is telling us that God has tools at his disposal that he uses in order to shape us and to mold us and to bring us to a place of completion and to a place of beauty, to a place that's fit for his kingdom and to do his work. But so often the way in which God does that, well, it's through trials, and it's through hardships, and it's often through pain. Not always, but sometimes. And in particular, what I think James is wanting us to see in these verses tonight is that it takes a godly perspective. It takes heavenly wisdom for us to be able to endure the trials that we face in life, and yet in the middle of those trials remain devoted to him through that process. It takes a, a heavenly mindset. It takes godly wisdom in order to endure the trials of life and in order to remain faithful and devoted to him through the process, knowing that he's doing something in us and through us. So let's just unpack these verses uh, pretty quickly tonight. Number one, here's what I want you to see. Number one, what does James call us to do but to live with joy in times of trials? Look at verse two. Count it all joy, my brothers, means brothers and sisters in Greek. It's kind of like a plural way of saying everybody. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Tri trials aren't necessarily words that we use in that often anymore, like, brother, I'm going through a trial. But what is a trial? It's a, it's a time of hardship. It's a time of pain. It's a time of frustration. It might feel like loneliness. It might feel like despair. It might feel like a season in a period of life that just... Life doesn't make sense and it's not unfolding the way that I had thought 
it would unfold. It's the kinds of times it makes us feel like we're lonely, we're scared, we're isolated, we're uncertain, we're frustrated, we're disappointed, we feel maybe betrayed, or our hearts are broken. It's the kinds of things you want to avoid in life, naturally so. It's the kinds of things as a parent you want to shield your children from. It's not the kinds of things that we would normally look at and go, that's a lot of fun. And James says, count it all joy when you meet trials of this kind. In fact, it's even more emphatic in Greek. The New Testament's written in Greek. And actually, in the Greek language, it says, all joy count it. You're like, what am I going to get ready to be all joyful about when you meet trials of various kinds? So here's the first thing to notice if we're going to live faithfully in times of, well, hostile times, times that are hard, is that God calls us to live with joy in times of trial. And notice that he says in verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. Not if you meet trials, but when you meet trials. I mean, you guys have lived long enough to know that life doesn't always unfold the way that you had hoped it would. There's seasons and experiences. And it's not that it's like, well, if you experience a hardship, he's saying when. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. It doesn't matter whether you're from America or you've immigrated here from somewhere else. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or whether you're poor. Trials, hardships, and difficult seasons, they will come. And he calls us to live with joy. Joy is kind of like a funny word because joy, it's not exactly the word that we would normally think of. I think the thing that we often will think about uh, when we think of joy is we often think about the word happy. Uh, And happiness and joy are really two different things. Happiness is dependent upon circumstances, right? Like, I'm happy whenever I get ice cream. I'm happy whenever I'm watching a movie. Like, I'm happy whenever uh, I get paid, right? Like, those are circumstantial things that bring happiness. And the problem is, when we import that mindset into our faith, and we believe that, well, God's job is to make me happy. And now that life is hard... Well, maybe he's not good. And James says, no, 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 you got it all wrong. God's not in the business to make you happy. He's got far greater plans. And even when it doesn't make sense, he says, count it all joy. You see, joy implies hope. And he tells us this in verse 3 and 4. For you know that the testing of your faith, look at this, the testing of your faith, it produces steadfastness and lets steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, here's what I think is a a drastic difference between a Christian life and a non-Christian life. You might be here tonight and maybe uh, Christianity is new to you and maybe you've never read the Bible and maybe this is all completely like foreign. Here's one of the drastic differences in a Christian understanding of life. You see, everybody experiences difficult times. Everybody experiences hardships. Everybody experiences seasons that are just incredibly painful. But God's word tells us that for those who are in Christ, for those who have a relationship with God through Jesus, he has a purpose for them in your life. It's not wasted. It's not by mistake. It's not like just happenstance. He has a purpose and a reason and he's doing something with it. Rather than just kind of being like random and like up to good luck or karma or just the way things fall out, God is orchestrating the circumstances and the events of our lives to where he says he is actually using it for a purpose. 
I started reading again. I've read this book a couple years ago, uh, a book by Marcus Luttrell called Lone Survivor. If you've ever seen the movie, it's about uh, Navy SEALs who were abandoned in Afghanistan and Marcus Luttrell survives. Pretty fascinating story. But in his story, as he talks about going to Navy SEAL uh, training, where they where they're uh, to, to where they're actually like uh, trained to be a Navy SEAL, he talks about how difficult and painful the whole experience was. But there's one particular commanding officer who was both brutally difficult, and he said, "We knew he had absolutely our best in mind. We would do anything for him, and he was brutally difficult." but we knew that he had a purpose in order to bring us through this hardship. So when we got out to the other side, we would be fit and ready for what was facing us. James is telling us with that same mindset, how do you live with joy? It's knowing, well, God has a purpose for this. And even though it's painful in the moment, I can trust him. And so therefore I can live with joy. He tells us that's the first thing to see in times of trial and hardship. And my question just kind of begins, is just saying like, do you know God in that way? Have you come to a place in, in your convictions and in your understanding of life and in your understanding of your own personal circumstances to leave and to trust those places of difficulty and hardship and to know, even though they're painful, I can trust that God is good and he's doing something in it, leading me through it. And if not, we'll notice the second thing then. And maybe you're like, yes, I do believe that, but I'm also struggling to believe it. Well, notice what he says, too, is that this takes a godly perspective. This isn't a natural understanding of life. This takes, second thing for you to see tonight, is that to live with this type of joy, it takes a, a heavenly understanding, or it takes a godly perspective in order to live with that type of wisdom and understanding. That's why he says in verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, well, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Struggling to understand? What does James say? Essentially, he's saying, have you prayed about it? Have you asked God for wisdom from heaven in order to endure through this time so that you can live with joy? That's what he's saying. Very simply, ask God for wisdom. And he has a promise. He gives to all without reproach. And, and the, the, the promise isn't, it's not a blank check. Like, I'm just going to give you anything you want. It's a promise that's connected to the wisdom of how to live life. The doubting and the misunderstanding, it doesn't come from you know, doubting whether or not God's real or it doesn't come from doubting whether or not he's going to fulfill these promises. It comes from a confidence and settled assurance that the wisdom that we need through life is coming from God himself. Uh, some people have looked at this verse and thought that it's sort of like this, uh, I, can, you know, I can pray for a Ferrari and God will give it to me. And then maybe I don't have it because I've been doubting. It's like I need to like really double down on my prayer. No, no, no. He's saying pray for wisdom and God is one who gives wisdom. I recently read again the, um, the story, again, if you, don't, if you don't know this person's name, her story's worth looking up, a lady by the name of Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, when she was 18, right before she was going away to college, she was with a group of friends at a lake, uh, and they were you know, playing around, jumping off the docks and things like that. And she decided to do a, a, a kind of a, 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 you call it a pike dive, like straight into the water. And she knew that it was fairly shallow water, but she was a good athlete and thought, I can pull out before I hit the bottom of the lake. And the story goes that she wasn't able to make the turn fast enough. And when she hit the bottom of the lake, severed her spinal cord and ended up being a quadriplegic for the rest of her life. 18, getting ready to go, getting ready to go away to college, had her whole life in front of her, was an incredible athlete. 
And she went through these series of events and these series of, 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 uh, of opportunities where people would invite her to go to these different church services or these different healing services where she would put all of her trust and her faith in believing that God's somehow going to heal her, that God could somehow restore her health. And of course, God could if he would, but she would read verses like this and think, why is he not answering my prayer? Why is he not healing me? And she went through a series of depression and bitterness and despair, and we could easily understand how that would happen. But the turning point came whenever she started to realize that God has orchestrated every event in my life according to his purposes. And even though this isn't what I had planned to unfold in my life, I trust him with my future. And I'll pray for wisdom. And her story has been one of, of remarkable fruitfulness, of a remarkable reach, of a remarkable ministry of, of, of thousands, millions who have been reached with the power of the gospel because of her story. And it's not yet the one that she intended, but yet God's been faithful to show her that he can even work through trials and hardships and difficulties, but it's not the kind of wisdom that you're going to find taking a class at FAU. It's not the kind of wisdom you're going to find through most of your influencers on TikTok. It's the kind of wisdom, <laughs> it's the kind of wisdom that comes from God's word. It's the kind of understanding that comes from heaven. It's the kind of heavenly perspective to interpret the events of life and to see God is doing something far greater than I could imagine. And this is the reason why I think he shifts from this to, to talking about the rich and the poor. It kind of seems random when you read through this. You're like, why are we talking about rich people and poor people in verses 9 and 11? And here's what I think he does. Why the reason I think he says this, verse 9, where he says, Let the lowly boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. What's he saying? That from a, from a, a worldly, from a godly perspective, the rich and the poor, it's not exactly the way that it looks. That actually the, the person who's rich actually is in a, in a more perilous position because of the success that they have in life and the potential for pride. And the person who's poor, well, he can boast in his exaltation. I often think about these verses and think about the, um, I don't know, like the would you rather game. Like, would you rather, would you rather face a duck-sized lion or a lion-sized duck? Like, you guys have done this, like, would you rather game? Would, would you rather be rich? And live life without God's protection? Or would you rather be poor knowing that God is your defender? You're like, I don't know. Would you rather live life rich in the ways of this world, not having God's protection and blessing? Or would you rather be poor knowing that God is your defender going through every circumstances and event of life? I think the answer to that is pretty clear. The psalmist says, or the Proverbs, uh, in the book of Proverbs, it says, do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate. Why? Because the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. How much greater is it to go through life with God's blessing and protection? That's not the eyes of the world. That's the eyes of faith. And that's why he makes this shift in his thinking. That's why he makes this shift to talking about the rich and the poor, because he's saying he's talking about a type of wisdom that doesn't come from life. He's talking about the kind of wisdom that comes only from God. It takes a heavenly, godly wisdom to understand the trials and hardships of life. And so he says, pray for wisdom. But the third thing he calls us to do and calls us to see uh, that as we move forward in life to live with a single-minded devotion to God himself. He says, verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, 
he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Summarizing what he said, but then he makes a transition here. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted with evil, but, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. It's almost like he's saying that the the kind of hardships that come from life by our own sinful choices will understand those aren't the type of hardships that come from God. Those are the natural consequences that come from our own sinful actions. And he's making the connection to see that those sinful inclinations that we experience Well, it's not just the hardships that come to us, it's the things that come out of our own hearts, out of the own desires that we experience. And those desires, if we're not careful, will they lead to the fulfillment of sin, which actually brings to death. We all experience temptation. We all experience temptation in many different ways, but he's making clear that those temptations, that sin, it's not a temptation that comes from God because God's purpose for you is not sin. God's purpose for you is not evil because he knows that those sinful choices, those things that are opposed to God's ways will end in death. That's different than the way we normally think, but we almost often think like a little bit of sin's okay. Like I can manage it and it's not that big of a deal. And I often like will use the analogy. Imagine if you could think of it instead of like a little bit of sin, like a little bit of poison. Would you drink just a little bit of poison? Like I came home and I found a little bit of poison on the counter and you're like, huh, mom knew I was going to be thirsty. She left a little bit out for me. Like, ne- <laughs> like, like never, right? Because, because we understand that that's only going to bring destruction in our lives. And so too, James is writing the same idea of saying, we experience afflictions and hardships, but that's different than the sin and the, and the temptations that we experience in our own lives, calling us to be on guard against those realities. He says, don't be deceived. Verse 16, don't be deceived. Notice what is God's intention for you? Verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no shadow or variation due to change. You experience pain and hardship in life. You experience times of difficulty and frustration, even times where it feels like maybe you can't go on. In in the midst of that, it's the joy of your fellowship with him that requires you to say, God's purpose is to bring every good and perfect gift from him in order that you might endure. There's a story that's told in Greek mythology about the song of the sirens. The sirens were these half birds, kind of half creatures that would sit on the rocks, on the kind of in this perilous position uh, and would call to the sailors as they pass by. Their, the, the story went that their, their songs were so beautiful that as the sailors would pass by, they would be naturally attracted to the song of the sirens. And in doing so, they would be brought to utter destruction and their ships would be destroyed on the rocks because the sirens only had evil intentions at heart for the sailors. And so the story, it's in Greek mythology, but the story goes... Uh, that Odysseus wanted to hear the music of the sirens, but he knew that he had the ability to make a terrible decision. And so he commanded all of his men on his ship to put wax in their ears so that they couldn't hear the song of the sirens. And they instructed them to tie him up to the mast 
so that when they went by, he could listen to the music, but not make the uh, tragic decision to jump overboard. And so his men wouldn't steer them away. And I think sometimes in our understanding of sin and temptation, we almost have that same mentality. It's like, if I can just get all the rules right, if I can just tie myself down and never make a bad decision, I can kind of get close enough and maybe hear it and I won't get hurt by it. I like much better the way the story ends with a man by the name of Orpheus. Orpheus was said to have played such beautiful music that when his ship passed by the sirens, He played such beautiful music that it drowned out the song of the sirens and that his men couldn't not only hear it, but wouldn't be attracted to it because they learned to listen to the music that was far of greater value and beauty and keep them on a course to safety to shore. God's telling us in his word, every good and perfect gift comes from him. He's training our hearts to be tuned to his grace, to hear the beauty of following him in faithfulness so that we're not, uh, we're not tempted and lured away by that which will only end in destruction and death. How does that happen? Uh, last thing for you to see, uh, last thing for you really to hear is that the, the work of the gospel, the work of Christ on our behalf transforms and changes us to where we're enabled to hear the beauty of God's word. I think you probably have experienced a time where you thought going to church was boring, listening to God's word was boring, it didn't apply, and yet maybe there came a time where because of your conviction of sin, you had a sense of guilt or a sense of shame, you understood that at the cross, Jesus has done something, done something of far greater value than you could ever imagine. That he took your sin and your, and your shame and your guilt and carried them to the cross, and he died a death that you deserved and at the same time imputed to you or gave to you his righteousness and his record so that your hearts would be transformed. And in the cross, we get to see and to understand, well, that death isn't final, but that Jesus endured the cross and he rose again from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God. We learn that our sin doesn't have to lead to an eternal separation from God, but for those who believe in Christ and have put their faith in him can understand uh, that they have life eternal, even in God's presence. And finally, the, the writer of, Psalm, of, uh, of Romans, Paul, says in Romans chapter 8 that the sufferings of this life, well, they're not even worthy to be compared to the glory that we'll experience in God's presence. So what's he call us to do then? Well, he calls us then to take heart. <laughs> take heart and to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. God is at work even tonight in the places that are hard and that are troubling and that are suffering and that are frustrating because he's bringing you to a place of completion and perfection where you more closely reflect the beauty of who he is. Let me pray for us. Our Lord and our God, we are grateful that you are at work in our hearts. We are grateful for the hope that's ours in Christ. God, will you help us even tonight in the places where we feel a sense of uh, just disorientation over the circumstances of our life? Whether those are just uh, severe, painful experiences or even just the afflictions and the hardships that come from day-to-day living, God, will you cause us to see that you are at work and that because of that, we can have joy over the work that you're doing in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.